This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdahl. We're featuring highlights from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Today, morals, markets, and the view from Google. I had the chance to sit down with Google CEO Eric Schmidt at the festival this year. We talked about how Google, one of the most powerful and well-known companies on the planet, has been navigating its way through the biggest economic crisis this country has seen since the Great Depression. And we'll have that conversation coming up. First, a discussion about morals in the marketplace. Since the crisis in our financial system, there has been plenty of blame to go around. Short sellers, subprime mortgage lenders, corporate executives with bonuses in the millions have all taken heat for the economic meltdown. Philosopher Michael Sandel says something has gotten lost in all of this finger-pointing, a sense of ethics in our economics. During his discussion at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival, he engaged an audience in questioning the moral limits of our market economy. Sandel is a professor of government at Harvard University, where he teaches a course called Justice, A Journey in Moral Reasoning. It's enrolled more than 14,000 students over the years, making it one of the university's most popular courses in history. This fall, his famous lectures will be broadcast as a 12-part series on PBS. Here's Michael Sandel speaking before an audience in Aspen, Colorado. Today I would like to give, uh, well, to take up one question or a set of questions having to do with justice. I thought in the wake of the financial crisis, it would be worth taking up the questions of markets and morals and the moral limits of markets. We gather in the aftermath of the financial crisis, and people have been trying to make sense of it. What is the moral of the story of the financial crisis? And the first answer that people gravitate to is, Greed. There was an excess of greed, and that's what brought the whole system almost tumbling down. And so the solution is to try to urge bankers and hedge fund managers and corporate executives to be more responsible and less driven by greed. And there is something in that, but I don't think that's the whole story. In fact, that's mainly a kind of hortatory moral of the story. It doesn't really go, I think, to a deeper fact about the world in recent decades. So I would like to offer an alternative, and the alternative moral of the story is this. In many ways, we live at the end of three decades of what might be called market triumphalism. It began with the market fundamentalism of the Reagan and Thatcher years in the 1980s, and then it continued in slightly different form with the market-friendly liberalism of the Clinton and Blair years. And what those three decades of market triumphalism shared was the underlying assumption about politics that markets are the primary instrument for achieving the public good. In the wake of the financial crisis, that era of market fundamentalism has come to an end. And so, perhaps has the faith that underpinned it, the faith that markets are the primary instruments of the public good. So the moral of the story, or rather the political project that we need to undertake, it seems to me in the wake of the three decades of market triumphalism, is to debate a new set of questions. And at the heart of those questions is one question, and that is, are there certain moral limits to markets? Are there certain things that money can't buy, or if it can buy, that money shouldn't buy? That's a debate that we have not had over the last three decades, even as markets have reached into spheres of life traditionally governed by non-market norms. I'd like to give a few examples of this tendency and then see what you make of it. We'll take up one of these examples. Take, for example, the proliferation of for-profit schools, hospitals, and prisons, the outsourcing of war to private military contractors. In fact, in Iraq, private military contractors actually came by 2007 to outnumber U.S. military troops there. Consider the eclipse of public police forces by private security firms. In the U.S. and the U.K., 
the number of private guards is now more than twice the number of public police officers. Or consider, here's another example of marketization. The aggressive marketing of prescription drugs to consumers in the United States. This is a relatively recent thing. But if you watch the television commercials on the evening news, you could be forgiven for thinking that the greatest health crisis in the world is not malaria or HIV or sleeping sickness, but a rampant epidemic of erectile dysfunction. Or consider recent, here's another example, recent proposals to use market incentives to solve social problems. And that's really what I would like to discuss with you. In the New York City schools, they're undertaking an experiment. They're trying to improve academic performance by paying children $50 for good grades on standardized tests. Some districts pay cash bonuses to the teachers, too, if the test scores go up. In Dallas, they're trying to encourage reading by paying children $2 for each book they read. Or consider immigration policy, one of the most vexed, vexed questions facing the country. President Obama says he's going to take up the question. Gary Becker is a Nobel Prize winning free market economist at the University of Chicago. He's offered a solution to resolve the contentious debate over whom to admit, the U.S. should simply set a price and sell American citizenship for $50,000 or maybe $100,000. Hmm? Here's, here's what Becker... He says here, look, immigrants willing to pay a large entrance fee would automatically have the qualities we want. They would be young, skilled, ambitious, hardworking and unlikely to make use of welfare or unemployment benefits. He also says that charging admission would make it much easier to decide which refugees to accept, those sufficiently motivated to pay the price. For obvious reasons, he writes, and here I'm quoting, political refugees and those persecuted in their own countries would be willing to pay a sizable fee to gain admission. So a fee system would automatically avoid time-consuming hearings about whether they really are in physical danger if forced to return home. Now, maybe you'll think that charging a refugee $100,000 is callous. But here's another market proposal to solve the refugee problem, one that doesn't make the refugees pay out of their own pockets. An American law professor proposed the following solution to the uh, refugee crisis. Let an international body assign each country a yearly refugee quota based on national wealth. Then, so that countries would be willing to enter into this scheme, let the, nation, let the countries buy and sell these obligations among themselves. So, for example, take Japan. Let's say Japan is allocated 20,000 refugees a year, but doesn't want to take them. It could pay Poland or Uganda to take them in. Now, according to standard market logic, everyone benefits. Poland or Uganda gains a new source of national income. Japan meets its refugee obligations by outsourcing them. And more refugees are rescued than would otherwise find asylum. So here's a perfect example of the force of market logic brought to bear on a pressing social, human, and political problem. And it's a good, a good place, really, to begin our discussion. So I, let's, I'd like to put to you the question, uh, this refugee proposal, not charging admission, but the buying and selling, uh, tradable refugee quotas. Just by a show of hands, how many... Um, Let's see how many favor the proposal and how many, think, how many object to it. How many favor that proposal? How many oppose it? So it's, it's a pretty good, it's about 60-40 against. Let's start by hearing someone who will make the case against the tradable refugee quota system. What's wrong with it? What's the basis for your objection? Who would like to get us started? Yes. Thanks, Mike. 
Uh, if you were a Jew in Eastern Europe in 1941, you would have gone anywhere they would take you. And you know the St. Louis story with the ship that wasn't accepted. We're not talking about people who are sort of being traded. We're talking about people who are, for whatever reason, whether it's uh, Rwanda or Eastern Europe or the Balkans, people are being driven out. And they're desperate for a place to go. And if somebody's going to take them in, I don't think they care very much what the procedure was, how they got there. Okay, that, that's good. All right, that's a powerful answer. And that, but tell us your name. Oh, Dove Zakheim. Dove, oh, yes, of course. All right, Dove, wait. Keep, let, stay with Dove. Let's get someone who will reply to Dove and then see how, whether he can defend himself. All right, so who has an answer? Who has an answer to that? Those of you who object, Dove has just made a case for this system. The refugees are in need of help. What they need is the help. And if it comes with a price on their head, that's of small consequence to them. You could simply require that each nation take in a certain number of refugees, and that decision could be made on an annual basis, and not have a trading scheme. In other words, you honor the refugees' choice of where they should go, and you have a total number of slots, which is allocated internationally, and then if more people want to go to a country than its quota, people <coughs> do second, third, and fourth choices. All right, let me ask make, you... Let me you ask don't you make a it a market transaction. All right, let me ask you a question before we let Dove back. What's your name? Bill Nitza. Bill, suppose that system were set up, and the countries, of course, the countries have to agree through some international agreement right. to the allocations. Suppose you set that, and it turned out that you could double, maybe triple the number, the total number of refugees who would be given homes. Countries would agree to higher quotas if they knew they could outsource them, if they didn't want to. Suppose you could find a home for double or triple the number. Would you still say, no, 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 we don't want to use the market? No, uh, I would be open to a second category, which is that countries could agree within a regulatory framework to take additional refugees provided that funds were made available, not directly to the refugees, but for housing, social services, and other No, but the idea is the market increases. Let's assume the whole premise of this is that the ability to buy and sell increases dramatically the numbers of refugees countries would agree to accept. Who has an objection in principle to using the market for that purpose, even if you could find more refugees' homes. Go ahead, Alice. My problem with it, with it is that treating uh, refugees or immigrants uh, as commodities uh, is something, feel, it feels immoral. I don't think human beings are uh, a share in a corporation. Dove? Well, you're right in a sense, but then look at where this is all starting. If people weren't being mistreated, they wouldn't be refugees. And once you're a refugee, you're just desperate for a place. Hey, I can give you a personal example. My great-grandfather was a very rich man. He was living during the Russian Civil War. He bought his way out of Russia. All right, let's let Alice reply. I think we have to distinguish between refugees. I'm assuming, Michael, that... Uh, there would still be a standard for who is a refugee? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we're now not talking about economic migrants. We're talking about people in desperate situations right. who need to get out and need to go someplace. And I would agree that the someplace issue is somehow less significant, at least to me, than the nature of the human being who is being being brutalized. Okay, now, all right, yes. I'm thinking about the unintended consequences as once you do the trading of the quota and you have a group of people that have gone, let's say, to Poland, uh, how they are going to be treated long term? Because you could say that wave of immigration, you say, oh, you were, you were allowed in 
based on the quota? And how will they be treated as a group of people? How will they assimilate? How will they be treated long term? And you could have a if, lot of unintended consequences. If they were being paid for, accepted because they were a, a revenue source. You right. think that would change the way they would be treated and regarded? Could be, because we don't know the, like once again, people would know that, oh, you came in in the wave of this, you could, you were bartered, you know, you had a bartering system, that's how you got in, this is how you've come to our country, they okay. could be treated differently. All right, so there's a, and what's your name? Eve Blossom. Eve and Alice are worried that somehow marketizing the refugees commodifies them and would lead them to be treated and regarded and seen differently. And that there's something, why, why would it be bad to commodify them? Is it because it's somehow, Alice seems to think it's dehumanizing in a way. Now what we have here is there seems to be a conflict or at least a tension between getting more homes for refugees if the market mechanism would allow you to do that, serving the general good, and a worry that somehow the market mechanism commodifies and dehumanizes and changes the character of the refugees and how they're treated and regarded. Harvard University professor of government Michael Sandel on the moral limits of markets. He spoke at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival. Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdal. Now back to Michael Sandel and his discussion about what happens when market incentives are applied to social issues. Let's take a, a case involving children. You remember some years ago there was a, a celebrated legal case in the United States, the Baby M case. It involved a contract for surrogate motherhood. You remember that? And it was a system where uh, a, a couple couldn't have a child on their own. They hired a surrogate mother. They made a deal. They paid her $10,000 plus medical expenses to carry the child, their child, and then turn it, sorry, carry the child and then turn it over to them. The father provided the sperm. So she agreed. They signed a deal. They had a broker. And then when the, she gave birth to the child, she changed her mind and decided she couldn't part with the child. She said, I want to keep it. And the case wound up in court. And it went all the way to the New Jersey Supreme Court, whether this contract should be upheld. Um, let's, this is a very different kind of case, or it may be different from the refugee case. Different states have taken different positions. About a dozen states prohibit commercial surrogacy or pregnancy, pregnancy for pay. About a dozen permit it, and the rest have ambiguous laws with respect to paid commercial surrogacy or pregnancy. Let's get the sense of the room here. How many people, if you were in the state legislature voting on the question, how many would permit surrogate motherhood or commercial pregnancy, and how many think it should be prohibited? How many w would permit it? And how many would prohibit it? Now, quite a sm small minority uh, would prohibit it. Um, those of you are, let's take someone from the majority. Why would you permit it? All right. It's, it's George Baker from Aspen. It's pretty simple for me. I've got two kids from surrogacy. There are, two, yeah. there are two beautiful daughters, three and 18 months, and without right. surrogacy, we'd never have children. What do, what do you think is the strongest argument against it? You've heard the you argument. Know, my, well, I'm, you know, my understanding in the states that have outlawed it, um, typically they're, it's interesting, they're actually liberal states. It's East Coast is New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, and it's the Mary Beth Whitehead thing. Right. It's that, it's that syndrome, which is this fear, um, you know, that was like a stoked up during that period when this event happened that it was a bad thing 
to have someone carry your child is one of the fears that we had actually going into it. The fear, it the, fear well, being that they wouldn't turn it over. Ex exactly. And, uh, but isn't it true that the contract requires them to turn it over? Yes, it does. And, and, it, and the lawyer actually allayed our fears um, by saying basically, you know, the, the woman who's going to carry your child is very fertile and she's typically married. So it's very arrogant for you to assume that she wants your children versus having her own. It's a pretty straightforward answer. Mary Beth Whitehead was different because that was actually her egg. And, uh, well, that's interesting. Do you think it makes a difference whether the, the paid surrogate is using her egg or an implanted egg? Absolutely. It's a very much of a, it's a different emotion for the woman carrying the child. Do you think it makes a moral difference? How much is a moral difference? Do you think Mary Beth had it, a... It becomes more adoption. I mean, if, if it's her egg, it becomes more of an adoption. It's almost like an open adoption issue where she's, she's artificially inseminated by the husband. Right. In our case, it was an open adoption. It was our child. Do you think that Mary Beth White had, had a, a stronger claim to her biological child in virtue of the fact that it was her egg? As stronger, well as... stronger moral claim, maybe not contractual claim. That's interesting. Is there someone who would like to reply to that? starts a, a slippery slope of selling body parts, making a decision as to fairness based upon money, selling kidneys, trafficking in humans, uh, selling people for immoral purposes. It just starts. And I don't know where you start it troubles the you. dividing. It and, really troubles me. And what's your name? Erica Hartman Horvitz. Erica. Since the Mary Beth Whitehead case... As was pointed out, the practice of commercial surrogacy has changed so that typically now the paid surrogate is only carrying the child to term, not providing the egg. Yes. As was, I'm sorry, your name? George. As George was pointing out. As a result, the surrogacy industry has boomed, and, but it's quite expensive to hire a surrogate. It's around... The total cost in the United States is seventy-five to 80000 about 25000 of which goes to the surrogate, on average. And since it's very expensive, people increasingly are seeking, as with other goods, low-cost providers. And as a result, what, what, where do you look for low-cost providers? Overseas, to low-wage countries. India, for example. Now... India is looking to build up its industry. Uh, and so passed a law in 2002 uh, legalizing paid pregnancy. And as a result, there are towns in India where uh, Americans and others from wealthy countries go for much less costly uh, surrogates. The price is about a third, even counting the travel expenses, the airfare, the hotel accommodations. It's about a third. And there's a town in Gujarat in India, Anand it's called, it was written about, where dozens upon dozens of women are bearing children for foreigners. So Anand, this town, may become to paid pregnancy what Bangalore is to call centers. <laughs> There was a, there's an obstetrician who was interviewed by a British newspaper in uh, Mumbai who said that every 48 hours she delivers a baby born to an Indian surrogate for a, uh, a foreign-paying uh, couple. Now, I want to come back to Erica. Is it Erica? Yes. Wh what about that? Does that bear out your worry? Is that what you're worried about? It really does. It just makes me feel that Anything can be sold for any price, and it's very hard to distinguish. And why is that bad, exactly? I guess if you're a believer in the free market and everyone can do what they like and live as they like, but people are being taken advantage of, perhaps. Okay. That disturbs me. All right, let's... Who has a reply to Erica? Just behind. Go ahead. These are consenting adults, and it produces a good produces a good for the Indian woman, is probably more money than she'll earn in a year by, by doing this? Or at least by the way, it's not more money than she'll earn in a year. 
On average, it's more money than she'll earn in 15 years. Okay. The defense rests. And, and it, it's also for the couple, the infertile couple, it's a wonderful thing. I have a grandchild that was conceived this way, and it's, I can tell you my daughter and son-in-law and the rest of the family is just delighted. So everybody gains. So there's a public, or at least there's a private good on both sides. Everybody gains, and it's consensual. Correct. Pre-choice. Hi. It's, a, it's actually a big assumption that it's consensual. In many societies, women are still chattel. And if it makes that much money for the family, that could be a good source. In one of the cases, wait, let's keep the microphone. What's your name? Adelaide. Adelaide. In one of the cases I, that was written up in some of the articles about this, they interviewed a woman in India who is being a paid surrogate. She already has children of her own. She makes $20, $25 a month working as a maid and made $4,500 for nine months' labor as a surrogate. Um, now, you, you, was she, she acting freely, do you think? Did she consent to it? She did. Then she's acting freely. It's her choice. It's her choice. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone who disagrees who would like to say something? Michael, if she's chattel, and, and uh, then she had no choice, she had to do it. Well, that was Adelaide's worry, that it was as if she were chattel. But if she were able to choose for herself, that's a different matter. Yes. All right. Let's let's just step back from this case uh, and notice the things that worry those who object. There are really two worries as I hear the discussion. One worry is that the standard argument for the free market consenting adults, not children, consenting adults, not chattel, but choosing freely. Some people worry, and Erica pointed this out earlier on, that even though they're signing on the dotted line, if they really are in desperate economic need, that may not be all that voluntary. So one objection is about whether there is kind of implicit coercion for people who are living in poverty and have not great alternatives. So that's a worry about coercion and freedom. Is this really free choice? That's one thing that worries some people about the use of markets in these cases, especially where there are vast disparities between rich and poor. Then there's another lurking worry that came up when we were talking about commodification and dehumanizing the refugees, which went beyond the question of consenting adults and suggested that there are certain choices or practices that may be dehumanizing and undignified, even if people agree to them. So in thinking through the moral limits of markets, we really have to sort out these two sets of questions. Under what conditions do inequalities between the rich and poor uh, countries or even within a society, at, at what point do inequalities undermine the idea of freely choosing consenting adults? That's one question. And then we also have to sort out this other question, quite apart from whether these are consenting adults, Are there certain things that money shouldn't buy, like refugees, even if there is an improvement to the general welfare? More refugees are taken in. And in order to answer that question, we really, well, what's behind that idea, that there's something dehumanizing in commodifying refugees or in paying poor women in India to carry pregnancies? I think it has to do with the idea that in some spheres of life, markets are not neutral instruments that provide for people to exchange goods and place values on goods by their own lights. Markets also change the way goods, certain goods, certain social practices are understood and evaluated. So the worry was the refugees who were sold will be seen differently, less as people in need 
maybe, and more as revenue sources who, once admitted, may not be treated with respect. That was a worry voiced earlier. So insofar as we need to think about and argue about the moral limits of markets in these various spheres, whether it has to do with paying kids for, why do we worry about paying kids for getting good grades on standardized tests in the fifth grade? Standard economic reasoning says incentives motivate people. And while some kids may be motivated to do well or to read a book, paying them to read a book, some kids may love to read. But others may not, and we want them to read. So why not add a second incentive? What could be wrong with that? It might increase reading. Our worry, I think, insofar as we shrink from the idea of paying kids to read books, we have a sense that in the case of learning, the market incentive may crowd out the intrinsic incentive. So you may actually get more reading in the short run, but for the wrong reason. And kids may, what you may be teaching is that reading is a way of making money, which seems to suggest that when people stop paying you, there's no need to do that arduous thing. That's the worry, anyhow. It's another example of the sense in which we know that sometimes, at least, and the question is where, in what spheres, markets leave their mark. They change norms. Let me give one example of how this happened. It was studied in the real world. There, it was, there was a study of some Israeli daycare centers. They had a problem, as all daycare centers do, with late pickups by parents, parents showing up late to collect their kids. And a teacher had to stay late to look after the kids whose parents came late. So they did an experiment. Some economists did. They had a certain number of the daycare centers impose um, a, uh, a monetary fine for parents who came late. And they tracked the results. And what do you suppose happened? Late pickups increased. Now, if you're thinking... if. If monetary incentives simply add to whatever incentives may be there otherwise, non-market incentives, that's a paradoxical result. So what happened? Why did that happen? The parents came to regard arriving late not as a failure on their part, not as an imposition on the teacher, but as a service for which they were paying. They regarded the fine as if it were a fee. And in a way, the distinction between a fine and a fee really goes to the heart of what we've been discussing. Because sometimes the market mechanism is not just a neutral way of exchanging goods, it's a way of conveying and sometimes changing the meaning of the thing that's being exchanged. And this comes up all the time. It comes up in the debate over cap and trade. Should there be tradable pollution permits as a way of trying to deal with greenhouse gases and carbon emissions? Or should there be fines on companies that exceed a certain amount of pollution? A, a fine carries a stigma. It says the, the activity is wrong and we want, to, we want to discourage it. It reflects a bad attitude that we want to lean against. Whereas a fee is simply a morally neutral cost of doing business. I noticed this distinction between fees and fines when years ago I would return late videos to the video store. And I would pay whatever the, the extra amount was, but they always looked at me funny as if I were doing something wrong for which I f would feel guilty. But I thought that that was a misunderstanding of the fine-fee distinction. Because I thought, look, a video store, you're in the business of renting videos to make money. I kept the video three days longer, and I'm paying you the, the extra money. You should regard me as a better customer, not a worse one. So why are you looking at me in that funny way, with a kind of attitude? But now I've noticed, so here, I mean, I, I thought they were acting as if they were a public library. When you return a book late to a public library, you pay not a fee, but a fine, even though it isn't very much. And 
it should be a fine because the purpose of a library is not to make money. It's to share books among the community. And so if, if I return a library book late, I should kind of slink in and feel guilty. And the person accepting it as I pay my fine should look at me with a kind of attitude of opprobrium. But I thought that the video rental place, they were confusing. They're not a public library. They're in there. So they confuse the distinction between a fee and a fine. Anyhow, the point of this distinction is that it comes up time and time again, often not explicitly, when we're debating tradable emission permits or refugee quota, tradable refugee quotas, or for that matter, putting a price tag on immigration. The general point is this. Markets leave their mark. And whether we're talking about health or education or public protection or national security or childbearing and parenting, what we need to debate and what we've neglected to debate during these three decades of market creep and market triumphalism is the scope, proper scope, and the proper limits of markets. What spheres of life are vulnerable to corruption or degradation if they are subject to market valuation and exchange? And what's happened in these last three decades, when we've just assumed that markets are the primary instrument of the public good, is that we haven't even debated publicly where markets should extend their reach and where they shouldn't. Now that the financial crisis has cast a certain skepticism on the era of market fundamentalism or triumphalism, maybe we will have an opportunity in our public life to have that debate. Are there certain goods that markets do not honor and that money should not buy? Thank you very much. Michael Sandel is a professor of government at Harvard University. He talked with an audience at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival about the moral limits of markets. This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdahl. We're featuring highlights from this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival. It's a week-long series of discussions and lectures about some of the most pressing issues we face today. As part of the festival this year, I had a public conversation with Google CEO Eric Schmidt. He's the head of one of the most influential companies in the world. And while he did say that the economic crisis is largely behind us, he was as rattled as the rest of the country when the markets first crashed. I started our talk by asking him what was going through his mind back in September last year when Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke and Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson laid out their $700 billion bailout plan. The worst day was the Wednesday when the money market funds broke the buck, if you remember that day, and that night, Tuesday night over, overnight, mm-hmm. the financial clearing system of the country almost failed. And the Federal Reserve had to go in and hand money to the clearinghouses to essentially make sure that the money, the dollar, if you will, that was clearing overnight was cleared properly the next day. And I said to myself, how do we get ourselves into this situation? And I still don't know the answer to that question. Assuming, though, that Google keeps its cash in very safe banks. Uh, In fact, in fact, what we did is we took it out of the banks. (laughs) And we put it into sovereign-denominated currencies because we figured that the countries would not go bankrupt. This country's currency, too, yeah? We we did a a, a basket. All right, good. Um, How are you... Assuming all that's true... uh, It is. Trust me, it's true. I'm a CEO. uh, I can't lie. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like I, a real it's problem. It's my job. I have to ask those questions. Um, how are you feeling then about uh, where we are in terms of fixing it? Well, again, with the caveat that I don't understand how the learned and smart people who were running all of this could have gotten us into the situation in the first place. So with that as a caveat, right? And I think we should have a discussion as to how that happened and how not just so much from a regulatory perspective, but what was the failure in information that got us to the point where we were in a really good bubble and having a good time and the currency almost failed? Right? Now, that's like a serious error. Mm -hmm. It's not a small error. Um, with that as a caveat, we're roughly on schedule. If you look at the sequence of events that once the crisis occurred, everyone realized that asset values were too high, you had first a real estate crisis, and then you had a credit and finance bubble. The credit and finance bubble was largely because of unregulated credit instruments, which were shut down uh, with the uh, bankruptcy of Lehman. Everything sort of collapsed, and then we had sort of October, November, December, where everyone's all panicked. The federal government, the, the Fed comes in with trillions of dollars of guarantees. People forget that there were about $2.5 trillion of additional guarantees of bonds and bond debts, most of which will not need to be delivered on, by the way. The total indebtedness that was guaranteed by the Western world and the United States was on the order of 8 to $9 trillion if you add it all up. These are enormous amounts of money. Remember, the U.S. GDP is $14 trillion. Um, so, you know, we sort of created all of that. Then we had the stimulus package, which is designed as a short term, which I'm strongly in favor of. And then you have the time that it takes for the system to work. And we're in that period now. Um, market low roughly in the spring, business cycle low roughly now, jobless high roughly early 2010. We're on schedule. How do I know this? Because the people who got us into this have told us that. What's, what's, what, what's, a, what's a better answer? Yeah. What's a better answer? Sorry. If you look at the history, uh, one of the things to learn is when you manage young people is to explain to them that, that things have occurred in history before. Uh, and young people don't often know that or ignore it because they didn't take those classes. And in our case, we're in a classic deep recession, and recessions recover. And I've just outlaid the exact math around a traditional deep recession. Can you innovate your way out of a recession, though? I mean, Google's a company that's made its name with innovation. You give your engineers time off to innovate, or on company time. Well, it, it turns out recessions end on their own, and politicians love to take credit for their recovery. <laughs> but, but one of the simplest rules is that the business cycle has not been eliminated, and there's evidence that the business cycle is going to get worse. And the reason it's going to get worse is things have gotten more interlinked. So we're going to go up together more and down together faster. And by the way, in information markets, the cycles are shorter. It's up, down, up, down, up, down, because there's more information. Now, it may be possible to dampen some of these by conversations and regulations. My favorite example here is, is Iceland. Um, and Iceland, which has 300,000 people and a, a lot of fish, and is, had three quarters at the height of the bubble, three quarters of its stock market value were the three banks that failed. Bigger now, than the whole economy. And, and, and they're not known as a banking center. And, of course, what was happening was they were arbitraging their currency against the euro. They were essentially lending in one currency and taking money in another. And there was clearly a regulatory failure at some point. I don't fully understand it. But at what point, why didn't somebody raise their hand and say, by the way, it's an error to have three quarters of your entire market tied up in these banks, given that that's not your economy? And so to me, what I hope will happen as a result of this terrible thing, I'm not trying to minimize it because a lot of people have been hurt by what I consider to be the errors of the global elite and hurt very severely. What I hope is people will say, hey, that doesn't make sense anymore. My house went up 20% a year for 10 years. By the way, that's a sell signal. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. The math doesn't work. What kinds of conversations, shall we say, have you had with uh, members of the administration about getting the government back out of the marketplace? Well, the answer that they give is that we're in and we'll get out. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and when I look at the criticism that, uh, and, I, and I, I think it's known, I was a, a strong supporter of the president and uh, his program, the one really legitimate, in my view, criticism from the other side was that once this spending and once these tentacles get in from the government into private, the private sector, and in particular the special interests that depend on the temporary spending, it becomes permanent spending. I think that's a very legitimate criticism, 
And the, the administration has said that they're going to answer that question by very strong steps in favor of transparency. They're going to show where the money went, what it went for. They're using the web in clever ways, and they're good at this stuff. So I think that as citizens, we should hold them to that commitment, and we should see after you know, the stimulus bill, more than $800 billion, let's make sure that that part ends and we get back to our normal business because that's ultimately the secret of America. Do you think they've met that commitment to, to transparency yet, or, or do they uh, still have they, a they, they have done their initial filings. So we'll, kind of. Well, no, but they, they're, on, they're on the schedule, but it's a okay. two-year program. Right. So, so far they've done it. But again, you know, you can imagine they, they say it, they meant it, they did it the first time, and then they forget about it later, and that would not be right. okay. So we, we need to hold them accountable for the commitments that they make as part of taking our money, if you will, um, and, and make sure that they really follow through using the tools that are available on the Internet. And what's great about it is that uh, although most of us don't have time to study these things in detail, for every program in the government, if you, if you basically publish what they're up to, there are groups that will monitor, they will keep them honest, they will check their commitments and what they say. And that's one of the great things about governance in the Internet age. Uh, in an economy where consumers are afraid, uh, how do you convince businesses that they have to step up and, and take a leadership role? Because, well, businesses, based, uh, businesses are run, uh, American businesses are run pretty rationally. And they look at demand and they make their investments based on that. Um, and the fact of the matter is most companies have, uh, with, uh, without some, with, uh, many companies have actually fairly strong cash positions. Yeah, most, in uh, fact, right? I mean, uh, even today, most. And surprisingly so. And some of that is regulatory in nature. Uh, some of it is the way our accounting system works. But the fact of the matter is many, and again, this is unsung. We always focus on the businesses that are credit sensitive. But many businesses, Google being one, have lots and lots of cash, many of the high-tech businesses and so forth. So we're waiting, if you will, for confidence to come back, for the markets to come back. And we know that they will. You're waiting for us. We're waiting for you. <laughs> but, that's, but, that's, but that's why these things take two years rather than one week. That's why, that's why there is a business cycle. Jeff. I'm Jeff Jarvis. I wrote a book called What Would Google Do? Um, And I won't ask you. Uh, (laughs) Since doing that, a notion clarified in my mind that I want to just try out on you is that what we're going through right now is much more than a recession or a financial crisis, uh, that it is a fundamental restructuring of the economy and society going past the industrial age of mass production, distribution, marketing, media, into something based on knowledge and, and abundance and the things that, that I did write that you're you, you about. And when we see what's happening to automotive and banking and newspapers and other parts of media, soon probably advertising big swaths of retail, uh, real estate, we're seeing a huge and fundamental restructuring that I don't think is going to go back and that a lot of new companies, one hopes like yours, are going to start creating new versions of these industries. Am I going too far? I think so. Uh, I'd, I'd like, of course, that you're good at it, because <laughs> your, your, your book was about was about taking some ideas and really talking about them in a global context, and very successful, I might add. Um, I think the evidence right now is that while I'd like what you said to be true, it's not today yet true. I'd like, I'd like us to make it true. And the reason is that almost all of the money and almost all the people and almost all the capital is not going to where you described it. It's going into traditional businesses and traditional industrial and service operations. I think one of the, the, the ideas about the Aspen Ideas Festival is to talk about new ideas like the one you proposed, is how could you accelerate that transition? What happens is that you get a, a young entrepreneur like uh, in the kind of industries that are, that are difficult to transform. And when you talk to them, they've hit so many regulatory barriers, so many barriers to entry, so many other ways that, that we need to find ways to make it easier. So when I, as a young engineer, I was very interested in, in trying to make the Internet more successful, and I ran into the regulatory structure of the telcos. So, for example, there was something called a T1 line, and what happened is everyone figured out how to build a business beneath the regulatory pricing for a 1.5 megabit T1 line. So an artifact of regulation was that a whole business was created. Had the regulation not been there, we would have been five years farther along. And I think if you look at every one of these businesses, you'll discover that the incumbents, typically large companies, working with regulators, have ended up making a cozy structure for themselves. And when when the truly discontinuous idea comes along, it's not in anyone's interest to take it on. 
And that's why the market pressure is so fundamental. So going back to our earlier conversation about the government and its role, governments are not particularly good at dealing with change. Right? Well, uh, one executive told me that uh, high tech works three times faster than traditional business, and government works three times slower than traditional business. Right? So that may be an extreme case. We designed our government not to change very quickly, and yet we are asking for very rapid change. It has to occur from the private sector. It has to occur from enlightened leadership, and it has to be occur in, in areas where money is being made. Because the, the only be Google because you were doing something new. I would argue that Google is as successful as it is primarily because of the openness of the internet. That that had you had brilliant founders such as Larry and Sergey in a difficult regulated industry, the progress would have been much much slower. And people always give us so much credit, but let's take let's give credit to the people who foresaw the internet opened it up, designed it in a way that it did not have significant choke points, made it be possible for random people, including 24-year-olds in a, in a dorm, right, to sort of enter and create something new. That's a story of innovation that's very, very precious, and we need to make sure that we preserve it for the next competitor, by the way, of Google. Let me just zero in for a second on sure. that question. Do you not then believe that this economy has been, through the past two years and the changes we've seen, fundamentally reset, that we're just going to proceed from here apace? Well, I, I would like it to be true. My question to you is, where's the data? When I look at most of where the money went in the economy, when I look at the tradition, all the politics and all the bills and so forth, and I've supported much of this, most of it's going to the incumbents. Now, with a counterexample that there's now, we doubled our National Science Foundation funding from $3 billion to $6 billion, which is a drop in the bucket. There's more money for um, appropriate medical research and those kinds of things. But, but fundamentally, the lar if you look at it mathematically, the majority of the power and control is still not around real innovation, and that needs to change. That's Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google. I spoke with him this summer at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. This hour, we also heard Michael Sandel in conversation with an audience in Aspen. Sandel is a professor of government at Harvard University, where he teaches a course on justice, the most popular course in the university's history. Sandel's talk at the Aspen Ideas Festival raised questions about the moral limits of the marketplace. If you missed any part of this program, or if you'd just like to hear it again, you can download the podcast. Just go to the iTunes podcast section and search for Ideas from Aspen. American Public Media's Ideas from Aspen is produced by Larissa Anderson, with help from Julie Seipel and Emily Bina. Technical direction from Rob Byers, Kyle Sisko, Zach Rose, Sam Keenan, and Michael Osborne. Oversight from Peter Clowney. I'm Kai Rizdahl. American Public Media.